diving in. Uh, it's just hard to forget about Dancing in the Rings of Saturn. <laughs> but I'm going to do it. Be strong. Uh, I was at a, uh, a meeting of other ministers. I'm an ordained minister. I, I was at a meeting of other ministers that I periodically have to go to probably about a year ago. And uh, during that, we do all kinds of business and things like that. I'm not going to bore you with it. It bores me most of the time. But, uh, but during one of these meetings, this guy was staying up to become a minister and talking about uh, kind of his call to ministry, his call to the Christian life, his experience of the Christian faith. And what he started to say made me put up my phone and stop checking my email and actually listen to what he had to say, which is, that's working my life. And, <laughs> and he talked about this. He said he, was, he had grown up in a church where there were tons of just rededications, which I don't know if you know what that means, but basically people getting up and they've maybe fallen off the wagon in some particular sin. They feel like they've cut themselves off from God, and so they're standing up there and they're kind of reprofessing their faith and apologizing to all these people. And the guy said that as he was in this church, it was the same people doing this over and over and over and over again. And he just got, he got really sick of it and tired of it. His attitude towards these people was, you know, stop, just stop going to bars. Like if your trouble is drinking, like just stop. Like I'm not struggling with that. Like you need to stop and just kind of be more like me. Like I'm tired of hearing it. God is tired of hearing it. We need to be done with this thing. And it got so bad, he said, that he just he left Christianity and he converted to Islam. And he said that in doing that, he thought he'd found his kind of system or his rules that he could follow. Where it's like, this is the stuff I need to do. This tells me how many times I need to pray, what I need to do with my life, how I need to dress. And he thinks to myself, he thinks to himself, I've got this. Like the things that I need to do are spelled out for me. It's super clear. I'm going to follow this. And I think I have enough power to do pretty well here until what happened he tried to follow his system and he found out that if you're really honest with yourself then you don't have the willpower to follow through on it not if you're consistent with yourself and the standards that you apply to other people like whatever system it was he said it could be islam it could be a certain very moralistic branch of christianity it can be another tightly controlled moral system it can be a very high standard of personal excellence that you set for yourself. But he realizes that nothing that he's doing is actually changing who he is. It's not growing his love for God or for other people. If anything, he's on this terrible cycle where sometimes he feels like he's up here and then he falls off the wagon, whatever that is for him, and he gets down here. And he has this kind of idealized view in his head of like, one day I'm going to be up here in my spiritual life if I just do these things, but he can never get there. Like, he's just, he's not able to do it. And eventually he just feels like this absolute failure. And he said he started to come back to Christianity. Why? Because he fell in love with the idea of grace. Though without any cause or condition on my part, that God loves me and has done for me what I cannot do for myself. Our trouble, I think, is oftentimes very similar to what he was wrestling with. That we have this view of ourselves that if I can just get here, if I can just do these things, then I'll be okay and God will finally be pleased with me. Or if these people over here would just stop doing what they're doing, like they would start to do something with their life and make a difference or whatever it is. I think our problem is that we don't have a really clear sense a lot of times of what grace is. And so we don't understand why we need it. 
But the New Testament talks about it all the time. And if you want to understand Jesus and how he understands himself and what he views as purpose in the world, why he came, why he's talking to people who are super skeptical of Christianity, like we talked about last week, or who are people who are super religious and seem to have a lot of things going for them, what his MO is, you have to understand grace. So tonight I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about how do we as people typically approach grace. I want to talk about how does Jesus approach grace. How do we approach grace? How does Jesus approach grace? So let's dive into this. How do we approach grace? Look at Nicodemus here. How is he approaching things? What does it say about him? He's a Pharisee and a member of the ruling council. A lot of times for people who've read the end of this story, like spoiler alert, Jesus dies. Uh, sorry. <laughs> a lot of times as we read stories like this, we can read about the Pharisees and be like, ooh, those are the bad guys. Like, those are the guys that killed Jesus and as they go into cahoots with the Roman authorities. But, and that's true, but think about what you would see if you were a first century Jew when you approach Nicodemus on the street. You would see someone who is super intelligent, who is extremely well-read, who is polite, who is concerned about society and morality, about justice and the poor especially. He probably gave a lot of his money away. He could pray publicly at the drop of a hat. He's well-respected by his community. He's well-respected by the Roman community. Everybody likes him. If you'd asked him, what do I need to do to be right with the God of the universe, he probably would have said something along the lines of, you need to repent of your sin, you need to follow God as he's revealed himself in the Bible, and you need to worship him with the rest of his people. And, and what are the first things that come out of his mouth? Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus has knowledge, gifts, experience, understanding, position, integrity, and he thinks that Jesus has a special connection to God that most other people don't have, especially not him. What does Jesus immediately say to this guy, though? Truly, truly, I really, really mean this. It is very, very important. You absolutely, positively must hear what I'm about to tell you. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can enter into a spiritual life where they actually know God and have a loving relationship with him unless God does something to them that they have no ability to control. Like, think about the metaphor Jesus is using here of birth. Like, when we're born, we have no say in how that will happen, where it will happen, with whom it will happen. Everything about our birth is out of our hands and in our parents' hands. They've got to do the deed. They've got to take prenatal vitamins. Yeah, you can laugh at that. It's gross, but you can laugh at it. <laughs> They've got to get to the hospital so that you can be delivered. Jesus is saying that in a similar way, no one shows up right with God. And that if we want to be right with Him and have a real relationship with Him, then what we need is for Him to do something as fundamentally important and life-altering as to make us be born. How does Nicodemus respond to this? Sarcasm. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus does not have categories for what Jesus is throwing at him when he demands a new birth. And a lot of times, we as modern people have a really similar response. 
Well, I mean, I don't think that's how it could happen. I mean, come on. Like, what about very moral people from other religious systems? Surely God works in other ways too, right? Like, this can't be everybody. What does Jesus say in verses 12 through 13, though? If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except him who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. If you and I want to know how someplace works and you've never been there, then you have to ask someone else who has. You have to rely on their testimony. And I know that for some of us who are sitting here essentially saying, you know, I think there's more to life than going to school and going out on the weekends and one day having a job and getting a family and getting old. Like, I agree with every culture, every people group ever, that there's more to life than those things. There's got to be something behind the curtain. How would you get the knowledge of that place or that person who's behind the curtain unless someone actually went there and told you or unless that person revealed themselves to you? I mean, everything else is just guesswork, right? Or how you might feel about something, which is just more guesswork. Like, we don't know ourselves that well. How do you know about a place where you can't send someone or somewhere that is a one-way destination? The only way to know is if someone from that place comes to tell you about it. How do we know what's behind the veil and how it deals with us? He who ascended also descended. The person who's at the top came down. And what does that guy say? Flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit to spirit. We're flesh. We're fleshly people. And Jesus is saying that flesh is just not the vehicle by which we have a relationship with God. It's like You know those old movies, like the silent movies, where people are trying to go to like the moon and like a hot air balloon? And (laughs) we can look at that now from the perspective of people who have actually been to the moon or seen videos of people who have gone to the moon, supposedly. Conspiracy. (laughs) From our perspective, though, of actually knowing how to get to the moon, we can look at those movies and think, you know, they were never going to get up there by hopping in a wicker basket with a balloon on top of it. Like, that's just the wrong way to get into space. Getting into a hot air balloon is cool. People get engaged in hot air balloons. You can see the countryside in a hot air balloon. But trying to float up to the moon in a hot air balloon is fantasy. Like, in the same way, trying to get into the kingdom of heaven and really know God by anything other than God working through the Spirit is a dead end. It will just not happen. And this should really give us pause. (laughs) Because if you think about it, what is Jesus' warning here to Nicodemus? It is not huge, flagrant sins, but it is is his sheer giftedness which might keep him out. That he is a man who's caught between keeping up an appearance of knowing it all, of having it all together, and genuinely wanting to have a conversation with Jesus. And for people who've grown up around church stuff, whose parents were maybe Christians, who've ingested tons of Bible stories maybe, or who are at least very moral people, we can hear this stuff and think, this is for other folks. But we are the very kind of people that Jesus is talking to here. And you know what? This passage is especially a warning to guys like me. Because Nicodemus has knowledge, he has gifts, he has experience, he has understanding, position, integrity. If someone like him cannot just walk into the kingdom of God, then who can? Jesus is showing us that first, 
The most basic principle of real biblical religion begins with grace. That everything begins with God's free, unmerited affection and work on our behalf. That our attitude is usually that we think that the people who look like us, act like us, vote like us, have the same social or cultural values as us, are the people who are, like, who are probably going to make it. Like, she's listening to my music. They're dressing like we dress. We're following the same celebrities on Instagram. They, he likes me and he's cute, right? They're just like us. They're so close. But who is Nicodemus like? He's like us. He has knowledge, gifts, experience, understanding, position, integrity. And what is Jesus saying to him? That on your own, you're not even close. That none of those things will get you to where you want to go. That sometimes those are the very things that stand in your way of knowing God. And that maybe people who are not as smart, as gifted, as experienced, with as high position or as much personal integrity as we like to think we have, are going to go into the kingdom of God while we remain on the outside. Because when you actually open up the Bible, what do you see about God and His work in people's lives? In Mark chapter 5, Jesus and His disciples are on the Sea of Galilee, and they're rowing up to the shore. And as they come up to the shore, they see a man who is possessed, but not one, but a legion of demons. Think like a thousand demons. This man is a beehive of evil spirits. He lives by himself among the tombs. He cuts himself with rocks. People have tried to bind him with chains, but to no avail. He is naked, and he is probably screaming at them as they come up on the shore, as they're pulling up their boats. I mean, it's an intimidating sight, right? And what happens? Within five minutes, Jesus is taking care of the evil spirits. It says that man is in his right mind, clothed. He goes out and tells people what God has done for him. And I guarantee you, though, as the disciples were approaching this crazy man screaming at them in very dangerous ways from the beach, none of them were nudging each other and saying, this guy's close. Like, it just doesn't happen. How could they? He's not like them. This is not something that people just naturally get. Jesus is not saying here that some part of us needs to be born again. He's saying that all of us needs this. Every part of you that was born needs to be reborn. How we think, how we feel, the reasons for why we do what we do, it all has to be redeemed. This is not to say there isn't still something good of God's image engraved on every person. Every person alive, Christian or not, has dignity, knowledge, the ability to create and dream great dreams. But it's corrupted, and we don't have the ability to reverse that corruption. We can tell ourselves, when I get my stuff together and I fix this one big flaw in my life, or I stop doing X and I start doing Y, that's when I get all handle on this stuff. But what does that focus on? Our doing, our flesh. Somebody once said this. He said that the heart is the main thing in religion. The heart is the main thing in religion. Our spirit, who we are on the inside. Our problem, your problem, is not that you aren't doing enough right things or that you're doing too much of the wrong things. It's not about our doing, it's about our loving. It's about our spirit. It's that we love the right things in the wrong order. I love myself, I love the people who are like me, and who like me. Sometimes I love God. I don't like the things that I have to cover up. Sometimes I don't like myself. 
Redemption, though, is learning from God how to put God at the top of the list of the things that we love so that everything else falls into place. You know what's hard about this? That we can't change what we love on our own. This is why after we break up with someone, we need a rebound romance to get over the previous person. Like, you need someone new upon whom you can set your heart's affections because you can't just flip a switch and change what you love. You need someone else to do that for you. This is why God's primary work in your life is not changing the things that you're doing or you're not doing, but changing the things that you love and you pursue. We will always do and follow the things that we love, the things in our spirit. And if we focus on the externals, becoming more efficient, increasing our productivity, being a better witness, being a great Christian leader, but neglect our hearts and our heart's affections, then who we are in our spirit hasn't changed. We're living by our flesh. This is why religious people always have a hard time with grace, right? Because we want to be in control and doing a lot of religious stuff can make us feel like we've got a handle on some things. But you know the secret, right? That we're not in control. And we only think sometimes that we are. And so much of God's work in your life is teaching you that He's in control and that He's good and that He loves you so you can give up on trying to be a religious person. And we can give up on trying to be good, whatever that means. And that we can just be with God as His beloved, sin and all. That being saved is not walking an aisle or praying a prayer because it's harder than that. Being saved is handing over to Him our good things, our intelligence, our respectability, our honor, as well as our bad things, our guilt, our fear, our shame. And letting God's work in our lives identify us, mold us, shape us, so that we run into Him and we love Him. Well, and that's got to be God's work in our lives. Look at verse 8 here. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Y'all, if you or I go out on the quad on like a windy day, you will see those huge 180-year-old oak trees waving side to side, like, like they're being shaken by something, dropping leaves, dro- dropping acorns, probably squirrels. And <laughs> we hope squirrels. There's so many of them. And you... S- <laughs> I don't have a thing with squirrels. It's all right. <laughs> I don't think. Um, <laughs> and you, but you can see the effects of the wind on those trees, how it's being shaken, how it's being moved. But have you ever seen that wind? Like, no, you don't ever see the wind. You only see what the wind does. In the same way, Jesus is saying that God in His grace is not something we can control or manipulate or call down on ourselves. It goes where it wants to go. We can see its effects, but not where it's going to or where it's been. And if you actually want to know God and not just hear about Him, speak about Him, sing songs about Him, do things in His name, but actually know Him in the way that you know that honey is sweet and sunshine is bright, then He's got to work in your life first. That knowing God is a work of His Spirit. And sometimes that work is big and flashy and dramatic and involves the kind of stories that none of us wish we had, but all of us wish we could tell. And sometimes it is so slow and gradual and progressive that it's like watching trees grow. And you only notice a change in a person when you look back at it again later and see what God has done. But that's his work in our lives. Y'all, I went to, to Paris a few years ago. 
and it was amazing. Uh, if you've never been, it is a true like world city. Uh, so much good food, so much good coffee and dessert and wine and history and art. I mean, it's incredible. You can go down into a tunnel under the ground and get on a train and it will zip you across the other side of the city and you'll come out at a place that is equally as cool and amazing as where you just left. I mean, it's an amazing city. And the crown of Paris, really, if you go, is the Eiffel Tower, right? Like, you've got to see the Eiffel Tower, but it's not just the Eiffel Tower during the daytime. You've got to see it at night, like when it's lit up. Because at night, you see its beauty and its grandeur and its power, that this is the glory of the French people. And if you go to it at night, as you come to kind of the pedestal that surrounds the Eiffel Tower, what you'll notice is that the lights are hidden. Like, they're not something you can just kind of walk into. They're very cleverly hidden. But if you could see where they are, what it is is they're buried in the ground, and they're like the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And the whole strength and power and energy of these lights is taking all that it can and shining its energy onto the Eiffel Tower and lighting it up so that even at night you can see its power and its grandeur and how beautiful and bold and huge it is. And for the Christian, the work of the Holy Spirit is to take all of His life, all of His power, all of His glory, and shine it onto Jesus in your heart so you would see Him and know Him and trust Him and get out of yourself and run into His arms. And this passage just begs the question, as has this happened for us? Have I been born again? For all the Christian cultural baggage that question brings with it, it's something that Jesus talks about, and we cannot discard it as an, something unnecessary. But have we been born again? Devotion, morality, justice, a life committed to service, those are wonderful things. Like a ride in a hot air balloon. But they are just not the vehicle to get you to where you want to go. Okay, but tell me what is the thing I need to do to have a love experience with God and spiritually you know, get some stuff straightened out. This is the thing. We must be born again. Which is frustrating, I know, because it's not something that I can do, but we're a people full of pretty competent doers. How is it fair that God can command something which is impossible for me to do? That no one can make themselves be born. Like, that's not fair, right? You're right, it's not. It's grace. That God is so gracious, He gives the very thing that He demands. How do I see that here? Show me, Bible guy. John, <laughs> John 3.16 this isn't just T Tim Tebow's life verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That for sinful people who are unable to deal with the reality of their sin and their inability to make themselves new, what does Jesus say that we can do? See how much God loves sinners. That when the world rejected Him, God loved the world by sending His Son to die for the people who would kill Him, so that we would become heirs with Jesus. And what makes God's love so incredible for the world is not that the world is so big and diverse, because spiritually speaking, it's not. It's all the same. It's against Him. But what makes God's love for the world incredible is that He can love it in a way that we don't love it. That He loves it and doesn't want to be like it. He loves it and He wants to transform it that in order for God to give people their new birth, God Himself experienced a birth. 
that God became a human being and limited himself. Not just a regular one, but a poor one from an oppressed people group. He had all this power and wisdom and knowledge. He could do miracles, but he used none of it on himself. But he gave himself so completely to the will of his Father in heaven that he said, it is my food and my drink to do this will. And what was that? That he should die on a cross for people who don't think that it's their food and their drink to follow God. That his prayer life, his righteous record of stuff done, his genuine love for God, all of God's welcome and joy and love are poured out into us because of Jesus. And what the Spirit is doing, it blows into your life and shakes you, is it's showing your need of Him and how poor you are in yourself. And it's showing you the rich supplies of love that's in Him and what He has for you. Do you know that you need Him? Do you know that everything we need to know God and to be born again is in Jesus and not in us? Do you know that all the conditions for us to be right with God are in Jesus? who loves us not for who we are, but in spite of who we are. That wherever you're coming from the spiritual kind of spectrum out there, just think about how this shapes your view of God. That God is not someone who sent Jesus and said, I don't want anything to do with them. You you deal with them. You talk to them. I can't stand them. But He sent Jesus because He loves us. That salvation is not Jesus saying, Father, if I die, will you love them? But it's the Father saying, Jesus, I love them. Go die. That it was that love from the very beginning of time that united God to do the impossible, which is to save sinners. To what end? To eternal life. That God is inviting us into His life, unfiltered, undiluted, all of His joy, all of His welcome, all of who He is, poured out into you. Okay, I'm a Christian. What do I do with this? What does this have to do with me? This is all the spiritual life. That all growth is growth in God's grace in our lives. That you are not saved by God's grace and then left to do things on your own. But you're motivated, empowered, and enabled to live the Christian life because of God's work in your heart. The things that we do that are good, whether that's going to church, whether that's praying, whether it's getting involved in something for the poor, like all of those things are as much a piece of God's work in your life as conversion. That this sort of unmerited, unconditional love is not just elementary stuff and then we move on to something else bigger and better, but this is the heartbeat and the meat and the bread of the Christian life. That this is ours if you're a Christian. This is yours if you want it and you're not. And so I'll end with this. I want to end by talking about what grace looks like. When I was uh, about nine or ten years old, um, we had a Big Lots in our hometown. I don't know if you know what a Big Lots is. It's like all the stuff that Walmart didn't want got shipped to this other store. (laughs) That's what Big Lots is. And growing up, as Christmas time would approach, my mom would sit at the, our kitchen table with the Big Lots uh, kind of pamphlet or flyer that would send out weekly, and she would circle the stuff that was in there that she would kind of want for Christmas. And it would be like $10.99, $19.99, somewhere right around there. She would circle the things that she wanted so that we wouldn't have to think about her Christmas presents. And then she would kind of look out the window and she'd say, oh, there's so much weeds out there. Like, I would pay somebody $20 to go out there and pick all those weeds. And so we would go out and get paid to do the chore that we as her kids should have been doing anyway. And then she would pack us into a car and drive us to Big Lots and walk us to the store and show us where the presents that she had circled were. were. And 
she would make us think that it was our idea that we had picked these out for her. And then she would walk us to the counter, take out the $20 that we had earned by picking weeds, and we would pay for the present. And then because I'm nine years old, and this really hasn't changed that much as a 32-year-old man, but I would, I would go home and I would want to take her present, and I would want to put it in a brown paper bag and staple it and write her name on it and throw it under the tree. But she was not going to have that because she was a southern lady from Alabama. And, <laughs> and so she would take the present that she had picked out, that she had paid for, that she had driven me and my brothers to the store to get, that she had walked us to to pick up, that she was now wrapping for us. She would take that and wrap it and put it under the tree. And on Christmas Day, she would open it and she would be so happy. And she would hug us and she would kiss us and she would say, I'm so glad for what you gave me. Do you realize that for a Christian, that is judgment day? That God would look at you and having given you all the means you need to do good works, the motivation, the desire to go out and serve, the things that you can serve and do, that the very things that you should have done in the first place but you didn't do, that He set up for you to do and you're doing, that one day He will look at you and say, I'm so happy with you. I'm so pleased. Thank you for this thing. Let me reward you. That that is God's grace in your life. That He rewards you as a child for the thing that He could demand of you as a servant. And that is the whole of the Christian life. All of it from beginning to end. And if you have it, that's yours right now. You don't have to do anything to add to that. You can't do anything to subtract from it. And if you want it, that can be yours right now. That all you have to have is to see your need of God's work and to ask Him to work. He's happy to do it. He's good enough to die for sinners. Why wouldn't He be good enough to do that for you too right now? That is my invitation to you. I think that is God's welcome to you right now as well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your work in our life. That we don't do anything to merit that work. We won't do anything in the future to add to it. Lord, that you reward us based on Jesus. And God, how great is that reward. That all the treasure, all the welcome, all the joy, all the happiness, all the hopes fulfilled of heaven are in Him. God, would you help our hearts that are afraid to put their trust in Him? Would you help our hearts to be, that are wounded to be healed by Him? Would you help those who've lost their way to find Him as their path? Those who are hungry to see Him as their bread? Lord, help us to know and believe and rest and trust in Jesus. He is so good and so kind. Make that real to us today. In your name we pray. Amen.